Hello there, everyone. Welcome to Digital Nomad Mastery, the podcast and a video cast where we teach you how to make money while traveling the world. It's me, traveling the world. We're currently traveling here in the Philippines. In two weeks, I'll be giving my big TEDx talk uh, here in the Philippines, and I'll be traveling around the region as well. It's called the Visayas. So make sure you check out our social media, our blog, and our YouTube channel for all the updates at daddyblogger.com. And one of the things I love to do is interview fellow digital nomads. And I have an amazing digital nomad on the show here today who's been traveling around the world and now he's found home in Mexico. And he's been uh, based in Mexico for the last few years. And he's also a fellow Canadian, a fellow connect just like me. And we're going to be talking all about his uh, journey as a digital nomad and also his specialty in terms of self-sabotage and especially connected to travelers and digital nomads. So super excited to cover this topic, which we haven't covered yet on our show. Uh, so Nathan is joining us from Chapa, Mexico. How are you doing today, my friend? Just fine. Nathan, um, before we get into the whole, uh, you know, area of expertise, why don't we get to do you? Why didn't uh, you share a little bit about yourself, your background, and what got you so passionate about travel? Oh, well, my, my background for the last 20 years or so, I've been working as a freelance writer. Um, I got into it as a result of getting fired from a job. And uh, like two weeks after I was fired, my cousin, who was a freelancer, came up to me one day and said, hey, do you want to learn how to write? And I didn't have any other options, so I said yes. And that led, one thing led to another, and I wound up writing for magazines all over the world. And uh, I, I mean, the travel aspect has always been a part of my life. I grew up in a family of travelers. My father was a traveler, and we... We went uh, on summer vacation all the time up into a place called uh, Windermere um, in, uh, in British Columbia. I was living in Calgary at the time, so we did that. And then, you know, at, in, into my teen years, I, I started studying to become a, um, a pilot, a commercial pilot. So I got my uh, private pilot's license when I was 17, same year as I got my driver's license. So I started flying on all sorts of trips, building up my hours to become a commercial pilot. So I went all over the place and uh, I had a couple of really uh, cool experiences. Um, I was working for an outfit called Springbank Aviation out of Calgary. And every day when I walked in for my day of work there, I'd go, hey, Bob, you got an aircraft you want me to ferry? And most of the time he would say, no, get, get to work. And that was it. But every now and then I'd walk in and I'd say, I was given that pitch and said, yeah, here's a ticket. Get packed. You're, you're on a flight to Wichita. You're going to pick up a Cessna and fly back here. So that happened a couple of times. That was really cool. So I got to, I would wind up on this all expenses paid trip. Just go down to Wichita, uh, Kansas, pick up a plane and, and fly back to Canada. So that was a, a lot of fun. And it, but, you know, the traveling has been a part of my life for years. And when Mexico showed up was in 2004, my ex-girlfriend now, she took me on a trip to Mexico and I really liked it a lot. Didn't want to come back to Canada afterwards. And I remember saying to her, I'm going to start learning Spanish. Two weeks later, I was in immersion. And a year later, we broke up and I started coming back to Mexico. And the, I mean, the last time I came back here, it, you know, I, I did it. It was an there was no plan at all as to if I would go back to Canada or not. And I actually did once for about 10 days. And then I came back to Mexico, but I left in August of 2014 and I've been here pretty much ever since. 
So tell us a little bit about your life in Mexico. So you're living there as an expat. Uh, of course, you do travel here and there, but you're pretty much made it at home now. So how's it been yeah. like in terms of being an expat, Canadian expat living and working in Mexico? It's actually pretty good. It's, it's, it's been a lot of fun for me going around to different places. I, I wound up in a bit of a quandary about a year ago because I was in a situation where I was living in Ensenada. I wound up in a really bad apartment situation, uh, excessive noise, and it was so bad that I finally moved out with no idea of what I was going to do next. And I wound up living in hotels for a while. And then a guy I was working with, because uh, I, I didn't know where I wanted to go, whether I wanted to go back to La Paz or Canada. And I, I liked La Paz, but summers in La Paz were fearsomely hot. It can get up to 45 degrees Celsius, 70% humidity, not much wind. So you, as you can imagine, that would be really hot. Yeah. I spent, yeah. Mm -hmm. One summer there was enough. Thank you very much. Um, and the other option was going back to Canada. And I really didn't want to go back. Um, it, it felt like a backward step for me. Anyway, so this guy asked me the question that nobody ever asked me, which was, if you could pick only one place to live year-round, where would it be? And so after a minute, I wrote down uh, Bucerias, which is a little town north of Puerto Vallarta. And I remember thinking, yeah, it's going to be awfully hot there in the summer. And then a couple of days later, I posted some ads in uh, a couple of travel groups down in the Puerto Vallarta area for house sitting. And much to my amazement, within an hour, I got my first hit. And the guy, myself, we talked a couple of times. He showed me around his property. He was like walking around the place with his laptop and camera. And so uh, he said, you know, come on down. And then a couple of days later, I got a couple more offers. And when I actually got to the area, um, it turns out the house, it was in a place called Mescalas, which is about five minutes south of Bucerias. And the other two houses were... Um, in Nuevo Vallarta and Sayulita, north and south of uh, Bucerias. And when I got there, I, I interviewed for the second house and I wound up house sitting uh, in Nuevo Vallarta. So I wound up doing that for close to four months. Went back to Ensenada for the winter and then I tried the house sitting thing again. This time I asked for a, a six month house and I got it in Bucerias. And I just finished that only a few days ago. So that was pretty cool. I was taking care of a uh, a top-down duplex situation. Awesome. Well, one of the things we love to do on a show, Nathan, is to educate, inspire, and equip our fellow world travelers, fellow digital nomads, to save money on the travels. And of course, house sitting is a great way to do that. This is a little yeah. bit harder for us because it's me and my wife and three young kids, and a lot of people don't want to have a family of five to show up at the door and uh, help yeah. you get the house. But hey, maybe there's going to be more family-focused house sitting websites in the future. Uh, but in the meantime, for people who are interested in the house sitting and they just don't know where to start, what would be your top tips, advice, and strategies for being an amazing house sitter and getting amazing house sits? Well, the number one thing is you have to write an ad from the standpoint of the, the homeowner, because the homeowner is going to be looking for house sitters, but from the standpoint of what's in it for me. So you have to list, you, you have to write for the house sitter and saying, what can you give them? It's not about you so much as the house sitter. I mean, sure, you do a quick intro. I am such and such, blah, 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 a little bit about my background then. But, but after that, it's said, this is what I can offer. I, I'm good at painting, basic plumbing, electricity, stained glass, uh, murals, 
whatever. And it was just astonishing to me as to how well my ad worked because I looked back on it a year later, I looked at my ad kind of cringed in terms of the way that I wrote it, but it was astonishingly effective. And, um, and when I used it again this past year, it worked every bit as well as it did the last time. The only major change that I made to it was no pets. <laughs> after, after cat sitting, I realized that I'm, well, not as fond of pets as I thought I would be. So usually the assumption is when you're house sitting, you're taking care of the house, taking care of the garden, make sure everything's yeah. safe. And usually it is taking care of dogs, cats, chickens, horses, alpacas, well, whatever, whatever uh, animals they have. But how do you do it without taking care of the animals? Like, does that, do you find that limits your choices? Um, it might. It, uh, I mean, I had two offers this time around. Uh, one was for the cats that again, uh, with the same homeowner. Uh, would have been for four months as opposed for two. Although uh, he said to me, oh, but you're going to have to pay for your electricity. I said, are you out of your mind? I mean, because uh, one thing that, and, and there's a lot of misinformation when you're you're doing house sitting is um, there's no such thing as a standard. And unless you really do your homework, you can wind a situation that's really not the best for you. And because typically as a house sitter, it's a, at the very least, a straight exchange. The homeowner pays for all the bills and you take care of the house and it's a, it's a straight exchange. But other house hitters charge for their time, like $30, $40 a night, especially if there are pets involved. And I didn't do that, but I wound up at like the first house that there were, there were all these blurred lines and I didn't know any better. So I wound up getting stuck with uh, some electrical bills or um, I was not very happy about it, but it was just what happened? The second house, unfortunately, that didn't happen and it was good. This year, um, with the house that, the, that I was on, uh, they didn't leave enough emergency funds, so I had to uh, pay for a whole bunch of expenses out of my own pocket. Fortunately, when the homeowners returned, uh, they reimbursed me for everything that I, I put out, so that was a good part. Uh, it, it's just, uh, if you want to get into house hunting, I recommend you read up on it and read about different procedures and, and making sure that things work so that you as a house sitter don't get stuck with something. Because I've heard of situations where house sitters wind up working, literally working for somebody and not getting paid for it. You've got to be really careful about what terms you agree to. I found that out the hard way this year around or this time around was much better, much easier. Those are some rock solid tips. Uh, thank you for sharing those. Uh, definitely make sure you know what you get into because you don't want to be stuck yeah. with all bills that you're not expecting. So Nathan, uh, obviously you're able to save money through doing the house sits. Uh, tell us also about some of the ways that you'll be able to make money. What have you done in terms of the uh, digital nomad side of the journey? Well, that's been kind of funny. You know, for the most part, I've been working as freelance writer, writing for magazines around the world, and some corporations. I still do that. Um, but the other thing that happened this summer was just a, a simple gig. It doesn't pay very much unless you have some, the qualifications, but there's a website called italki. And if you're a native uh, English speaker, you can get uh, gigs on this site and, and wind up working as a tutor. Or if you have the academic qualifications of a full-blown teacher on that site and you set your rates and you do a video about who you are and your background and everything else, what you have to offer, 
and then you just put up a profile on this site and then students from different parts of the world will come to you to learn English. And it's been, it's been kind of interesting. It, it doesn't pay very well. Uh, despite all my English understanding, I don't have these degrees, so I'm not able to earn what I know I'm worth. Um, and it's frustrating in that respect. But there is one really nice thing about it is, is that you get to interact with uh, people from all over the world. So I've had students from Brazil, Russia, China, Japan, Korea, um, just various different places in uh, Italy. And it's been really interesting talking with people and noticing how we as native speakers bring what we know as a native speaker to a new language, which may not necessarily be correct. It's been kind of interesting that way, uh, but it's been really cool talking with some of these people. They, some of them have some really interesting stories to tell. And if you have uh, additional backgrounds, like if you have a background in business, you would want to add it to your profile because you'll attract people who are into business and want to know more about that. So you can do it on the side talking site. It's another uh, edge for you. Sounds great. And also you're doing coaching. Tell us more about your coaching. Yeah, the coaching is something I've been doing informally for many years, helping people. And... It, it was originally going to be like, well, okay, how do I put it? Uh, the way that this whole thing got started is about three, four months ago, um, I had created a, I decided, okay, it's time to become a teacher. And I had asked, been asked by some people that I met in, um, in Busuria. So it, it was kind of a funny thing. I was just wandering around one day and I stumbled on a, on a place called uh, Elaine's. And I thought, oh, this is cool. So I stopped in there and I wound up meeting some people and they invited me to give a talk on self-sabotage. And now the way that this whole thing came about is rather convoluted. I put up a website called Silencing the Noisy Mind. And I was going to do teachings on showing people how to attain the states of silence, how to, how to learn how to uh, move away from uh, addictive compulsive thinking. And so I have a, a system for that. Anyway, so I did that. I put up a Facebook group and then I started doing Facebook lives. And after three or four of them, uh, a woman wrote to me in the comments, hey, I was watching your Facebook live. Really like what you have to say. I was referred by a friend. How would you feel about doing a TED talk? And so that's where that got started. And like Ricky, I'm doing a, a TED talk in November on the 27th in Puerto Vallarta. Um, but as for the coaching side of it, it just it just gradually grew out of this thing. I never really intended to become a coach, but people kept asking for certain things. And then I was introduced to Ricky in a number of months ago through a mutual friend of ours. And it just it just gradually evolved. And um, and I, I was initially going to be doing this stuff to do is silencing the noise in mind. But when I sat down to write the signature talk for the TEDx talk, uh, self-sabotage kept coming up. And it, it just became obvious that I, I couldn't avoid it and that I had to use it as my, my opening, my doorway. You see, every one of us who wants to become a coach or work with people in, in one particular way, like a lot of people say, well, I've got all these qualifications and I want to put all of this on my site. And I'm going, well, great, you're going to lose your audience before you even begin. The way to get started with something like this 
What's the number one thing you're known for? What's the number one thing that people keep coming to you for over and over again? And when I get that answer, I can say to them, okay, that's your doorway. You start there. And then when people come into your site, get a taste of what you can do, then you can tell them about the other stuff. Same with me. So the self-sabotage, um, it just it just grew out of that. And, and people have been asking me about it more and more and I've been writing about it. And, and so that's that's what's come up. And that's how it came about. Awesome. Yeah, definitely a shout out to a good buddy, Scott Patton, who's a yes. podcast, uh, co-host and uh, he's uh, helped us a lot uh, recording Udemy courses. If you're interested, definitely reach out to Scott about recording your own Udemy course. So Nathan, yeah. um, for this whole area of self-sabotage, like uh, this is something we haven't covered. We've done like 550 plus episodes. <laughs> and we haven't even mentioned the word ever in 500 plus episodes. So obviously it's not common vernacular that people say, like, Hey, are you struggling for self-sabotage? Oh, I'm struggling for self-sabotage too. It's not something you normally ask your friends at a bar watching a Canucks game. So what is self-sabotage for the people who are listening to this podcast? And I have no clue what the heck we're talking about. What is it? Well, it can come in a variety of forms. It's like it could come up in terms of you really wanting to do something in your life but not feeling that you're up to the task. So you create all sorts of activities as a way of avoiding what you really want to be doing. That's a form of self-sabotage. The form that I know the most uh, that has come into my life as a result of, of trauma. And so and the, the first example that I can think of when it showed up, I was, I was 10 years old. I'd given a report to my grade five class on amoebas and they called me a liar and stupid. And, and the shock of it was more than I could stand. My teacher didn't do anything to stop it. She didn't help me in any way. And it overwhelmed me mentally. And so several things happened. I wound up adopting the, the belief, the limiting belief, I'm stupid. And I also developed this thing called dissociative amnesia. Dissociative amnesia comes about as a result of a, it, it could be a severe shock, trauma, some sort of illness. But in my case, it's always been to do with trauma and uh, or some sort of shock, which triggers this reaction and I literally can't remember. And in this particular case, when it happened, I didn't recover my memories for 13 years. So, so I adopted the limiting belief, I'm stupid. That became a form of self-sabotage. And I failed my way through school for 13 years after that. I came out of it when I was standing in the locker room one day in a tech school and realizing I was doing fairly well on some of the courses. And this thought popped into my mind. It's like, where did I ever get the idea that I was stupid? And then I remembered the whole trauma and humiliation of grade five. And it just played my mind for a few moments and went away. And then, but it, it, it uh, and uh, after that, my marks took off. But self-sabotage was something that kept playing out in my life in one way or another. And the last time it happened in a major way, and it caused massive trauma in my life, was when... Um, the Canada Revenue Agency came after me for an amount of tax uh, about eight years ago, and I didn't have the money, and they threatened me with seizing all my assets. And I remember being absolutely furious because I had just broken 100000 in my business a couple of years before, and, and I thought I was going to be rewarded and treated well, and instead in Canada I was punished with all sorts of taxes, all sorts of audits, massive interference in my life. 
And so when these things showed up, I remember looking and thinking, well, if you're going to take everything that I value most away from me, I am going to make damn sure that you can't take any more. And so it triggered amnesia, so I couldn't remember what I what happened, but it also triggered self-sabotage in the form that, that um, I had developed this twisted belief in my mind that the only way that I could protect myself was to drive myself into poverty so that uh, they wouldn't be able to harass me anymore. They wouldn't be able to get any money out of me anymore. And that's quite literally what I did. And I wound up homeless at one point, uh, caused massive heartache in my life until you know maybe five, six months ago, it finally came to a head. And the reason that it came to a head was uh, another trauma, which broke me out of my pattern. You see, my life kept telling me over the years after that happened, it kept life kept trying to reach back to me to break me out of the pattern. But I was so angry and I was so hurt and I was so afraid of this agency because they literally threatened me with saying to me, uh, we, can, we can take everything you own away from you with taxes and you can't fight back. And, and we can literally ruin you like that and you can't do anything about it. And I, I knew this from before, not just from that, but from some books I'd read. Anyway, so as you can imagine, it triggered the self-sabotage in me where I felt the only way I could keep myself safe was to do this. It was one of the worst mistakes I ever made, but that's what happened. And, you know, and during this time, I was also traveling too. So anyway, I uh, had this massive shock about a number of months ago. And what triggered it is I bit into an English muffin, one of my teeth shattered to the gum line. That's what woke me up because I had to get emergency dental work. I'm still dealing with that. Um, but thankfully, I'm in a bit of a holding pattern with that for the, the time being. But that's what woke me up. And when I woke up, I thought, I got to face this once and for all. I've got to get this crap out of my life. And what I did is I called up a guy who was a former auditor for the CRA. He wrote a book, uh, If You're a Canadian and You Are Paying Taxes in Canada. Uh, this is an aside, perhaps, but you need to get in touch with a, a guy by the name of Alan Baggett. And he wrote a book called The Tax Collector's Bible, the single most important book for any Canadian who is paying taxes in Canada to read, because it's going to tell you everything about the income tax system. And anyway, I knew about the book and it had helped me, but I was still deathly afraid of the CRA or Canada Revenue Agency. Because of what happened, it forced me to look at it. And when I looked at it, I contacted this guy and I went through a process. And one of the things I realized that the only way that this thing was ever going to stop is for me to become a non-resident in Canada. And the, uh, the government has changed the rules. Previously, had to be out of the country for two years before you could become a non-resident. Now it's only one year. So with Alan's help, I filed all the paperwork to become a non-resident. And once all of that goes through, that's pretty much the end of this, this drama. But uh, this is, these are a couple of examples of self-sabotage. And as for travelers, well, geez, they can show up in a ton of ways. And uh, I know we'll get into that. I, I'm pretty sure Ricky has a question or two for me on that. Yeah, I mean, like, uh, in terms of, like, people who do feel these symptoms of self-sabotage in their life, I mean, I think we all self-sabotage to some degree, uh, but there's like probably mild self-sabotage and there's extreme ones, like you said, driving yourself into poverty. That's extreme or getting a divorce or eating too much or like extreme self-sabotage. So if people are struggling with these self-sabotage tendencies, 
what are your advice and tips uh, for overcoming self-sabotage? Well, first, first thing is to become aware of it and to realize that you're actually engaging in uh, self-defeating behaviors. I mean, that's the number one thing you need to do. And then, and then there's, you're going to start looking at your life and going, well, okay, when the self-sabotage is going on, there's always a positive intention, which is to keep you safe in one form or another. Even if the, the actions of the self-sabotage are extreme, as they, they were in my case, but then you need to start looking at your life. It's like, what is this behavior costing you? And you need to write out in detail you know, how much damage is this causing to your life? And in other, and looking at things like um, what will happen to your life if you keep behaving in this way? Now, Anthony Robbins, he's, he's got a really cool way of uh, dealing with self-sabotage. But one of the things that he talks about is you've got to change the thought that is leading to the self-sabotage. If you've got a particular thought, like once you identify it, you know what it is, then you can start working about changing it. And one of the ways that you would change it is using a technique out of neuro-linguistic program, for short, where you literally scramble thought so that you can't access it anymore, so it can't trip you up anymore. And when you do it in that way, you, uh, it will allow you to uh, rewrite the script, so to speak. So what you would do is you take the thought and how it plays out in a voice in your mind. You would speed up the voice so it sounds like a cartoon character. You make it really high-pitched and squeaky. Um, you would do different things like running the voice backwards and forwards in your mind. Uh, you would even go as far as to imagine, or if you have it handy, some really obnoxious, loud circus music that you play over a speaker while you're sitting there and running this through your mind. And then uh, the, the voice you imagine, like some sort of ridiculous clown saying, and what you're doing is you're scrambling. You scramble it enough, you won't be able to access it anymore. And after a few minutes of doing this kind of stuff, it'll scramble the voice. And then you have the opportunity to rewrite the script in your mind. How do you want to be living? So you take the time to write out in detail what you actually want. And then once you write out what you actually want, you start rehearsing it through your mind as to how you want it to look. Even going through the point of acting it out, it's like Rick and me talking about doing TEDx talks. Uh, one of the things that you could do is you could create a vision board, which shows your life as the way that you want it. But there's some other cool things that you can do with something like a vision board. Let's say a part of your, your vision was to be a public speaker. Well, you could uh, get yourself a microphone or just even a toilet paper roll as a prop and then stand in front of a, a video camera and just start giving a talk and just record yourself doing this, however ridiculous it may seem or feel. But then you, you, you watch that thing or you create a little set in your home where you do this for a few minutes each day. Because one of the things that you need to do is if you want to start getting the success in your life that you really want, uh, there's you need to start acting as if. Now, what that means is you build this new persona for yourself, new direction in life, and then you act as if you are already that person, you've already arrived. And you start thinking about that every day. So every morning when you wake up, you know, let's say you wanna be a professional speaker, 
you start thinking yourself as, oh yeah, that's right. I, I'm, I'm going to act as if I'm a professional speaker that I've already attained the success that I want, already attained the recognition that I want. And you just go about your day and act as if you were that person. How would a successful speaker walk? How would they dress? How would they move? How would they speak? How would they interact? You start doing stuff like that and you will gradually start changing your mindset and moving into the person you really want to be. So these are different ways of overcoming self-sabotage. There are other ways too, but I don't know how much time we have. Yeah, no, I mean, I obviously do coaching, speaking around this whole topic. And uh, by the way, I had a chance to do some of Nathan's sessions uh, dealing with my past and, you know, parental issues and, Oh man, it's uh, helped me a lot. So I highly recommend taking up Nathan in some of his coaching sessions. Um, you know, like in any area, it could be bullying, it could be childhood, parenting, job, health. Uh, we often sabotage ourselves in so many areas. So Nathan, uh, how would people find out about you if uh, they have questions or concerns or they want to find out more info? Well, um, I've got a URL. I, I can't remember the exact form of it. I'll have to send it to you. But if they do a search for me on Facebook, just uh, Nathan Siegel on Facebook, and they could also do a search for my group, uh, noise, Silencing the Noisy Mind. I think it's just groups, uh, Noisy Mind, something like that. Uh, you'll find me if you just do a search, you know, just the <laughs> way I am looking right now, um, they've got a profile for being a public speaker. A couple of other ways people can get in touch are admin at nathansiegel.org. Or if you want to call me, uh, my number is 408-844-4851. And for those of you who are digital nomads. Awesome. Uh, yeah, so make sure you check out Nathan's website. I have it uh, right below. If you're watching this on YouTube, it'll be right in the YouTube description. And if you're listening to iTunes, they'll be right in the show notes. So thanks, everyone. Make sure you check out Nathan. Uh, he'll be doing his TEDx talk, and I'll be doing my TEDx talk is November 2. And I'll have links below when those are about out as well. So make sure you subscribe to us on Digital Nomad Mastery on YouTube and iTunes. And we'll catch up with you guys in the next episode. Happy travel.